to sit and I want to welcome the live stream audience that might be watching us tonight and joining us. It's not the same, but we're glad that you're there and that you're able to to vid have the video to uh, experience the, the Bible study. And uh, uh, just to say, we have people who do listen in from not, it's not just people in the community, uh, people who live in other states, uh, some who are from up north. And so it's a real blessing. Uh, who was it that told me they were, I forget what country they were in, like Singapore or somewhere, and they were tuning in to check the service. You know, it's kind of neat. Uh, so they were just visiting there and they, they, they still could connect, you know. So that's kind of neat. Uh, before we get started, just a little housekeeping. Uh, Deb handed this to me. These are the new uh, Bible study journals that we have. And of course, it's in the ESV, and it's all of the book of Philippians. We're starting this weekend. We pick up verses, verse 3. So we're just getting started. And, and if you'd like one of these, uh, we're, the suggested donation is $5. But if you don't have $5, you take one. We're, we're glad for you to have one. And maybe a couple of you, three or four of you, who are led can maybe give a little more than $5, and that just kind of offsets the costs for those who can't maybe afford it. So anyway, uh, these, this is a design one, okay? They have some that have designs. These are pretty ladies. Man, you don't need these, okay? We've got black ones coming Sunday. The black ones will be here Sunday. No, you can choose whichever one you like, but there they are. And see, Deb, she'll be glad to... Uh, to, to give you one, okay? And uh, again, as always, uh, there's always needs in the body, always people that are going through trials and struggles. Uh, in a church of any size is going to have that, and we're no exception. And, and I, you know, years ago I used to think, you know, what the church ought to be, everybody ought to be healthy all the time. But the reality is, then I started understanding so many scriptures where it talks about how God uses our, our trials. He uses our setbacks. And, and oftentimes, uh, it doesn't end the way we would, would want it to end. Uh, the Lord has a work, and he's, His work is, is greater than our work. His desires are greater and more complete than ours. And so now, I just look at sickness and I go, okay, what's God trying to teach me? While I'm here, I mean, I want to get well. I mean, there's no question, I want healing. But while I'm sick, Lord, teach me. What are you trying to teach me? So that I'm learning through the good and the difficult. And so let's pray that way tonight for people who are going through trial. And let's ask God for their healing, but let's also ask that God would draw them closer, that they would grow in Him and be stronger in the Lord and their faith. Okay? Father, thank you tonight uh, for this time. And obviously, you are the centerpiece of our gathering. Uh, yes, we do come and enjoy the fellowship, and we do enjoy the snacks, <laughs> but and we, we, we enjoy opening the Word of God, but really what it boils down to is the worship of you. And, and so now, Lord, through your Word, as you begin to reveal more to us about your nature and character, more to us about the truth that you want us to live by, it's amazing how the Bible can serve as a surgeon's scalpel and can do a, a, a very uh, specific work in each of us. And I pray that tonight, Lord, that you would take the things that are in our lives that are dross, the things that we don't need, the things that are just lingering, and that through the Word of God we would be washed, cleansed, and we would come into greater sanctification. We ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen. And it is interesting, you know, where the Bible says in Hebrews that this, the Word of God is a double-edged sword. That word sword is misrepresented. Um, in the original Greek, it actually is more of a reference to a close combat knife. It's not this, I mean, I don't know what your thought is when you read double-edged sword. I think of the Knights of the Round Table, you know, these big swords that go all the way to the ground, you know, and they're just, that, that's not it. It's the picture of a knife that in close proximity you can work. That's the Word of God. Kind of a neat concept, isn't it, to think about. Amen. And God is. The Holy Spirit comes after us. Okay. 
Tonight is 2 Kings chapter 10, and this is the, a chapter that's all about the reforms of, of, of the northern kingdom Israel under Jehu the king. Now, I want to go back and review quickly, if I can, because I think last week we covered quite a bit of territory, and I think for us to understand tonight, we need to have context from last week. So let me quickly go through this. The first thing that Jehu carried out as king of Israel is the execution of the house of Ahab, specifically the immediate family. Okay, so let's remember that Jehu had served as the former camp commander in the king in King Ahab's army before uh, before God raised him up to become this this new king. Even though there was already a king of the northern kingdom, but the difference is the guy who was serving as the northern king, uh, uh, he was the son of Ahab. He was not a legitimate king. All of these kings that took over in the northern kingdom, for the most part, they, 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 they took over with power. They took over with scrupulous ways. They, they seized the throne. They stole the throne. They assassinated the kings. None of them came through God's plan for them to become king because God was not in the separation of the northern kingdom. They should have been part of Judah in the south, but they weren't. So, uh, so now we're talking about... Uh, uh, Joran, J-O-R-A-N is one way to say it. Jehoran is the other way they pronounce it. But Joran is the king, the son of Ahab. And it's, uh, it's through a private meeting with one of Elisha's young prophets that he sends to Jehu, a, who was a former commander of, the, of one of the armies for the northern kingdom. And in that meeting, he anoints him as the next king. And immediately he knows God is the one that's doing this. This is not fake. This is not a man attempting to take over the throne. So then uh, we actually go all the way back to Elijah's day. We looked at that, how when God chose Jehu way back before this was even a thought, uh, God chose Jehu as one of the three men who would enact his judgment upon Ahab's family. God told the prophet Elijah, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, the, Aram, the Aram, uh, Arame, Arameans actually went to battle against uh, Ahab and, uh, and, well, actually his son uh, Joram, and Ahab was wounded in the, or, no, yes, Ahab was wounded in the battle. Joram also went up against them, and he was wounded as well. So all of that was God's plan from the beginning. And also, uh, anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel, to take out Jezebel and then implement reform over Israel. So first, I want you to anoint Haziel, who's a pagan king, to come in against the northern kingdom and take out the father. And then I want you to raise up Jehu, the son of Nimshi, and, and he will bring reform to Israel because they desperately need it, and we'll look at that in a moment. And then anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So when Elijah was ready to call it quits because Jezebel threatened him that she would kill him by the next day from the time that he killed the, the, prophet, the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, he's wandering in the wilderness, found a cave, hiding, and God comes to him, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm the last one standing. Nobody else cares. Nobody else loves you. Nobody else is, is willing to fulfill your will. And therefore, Lord, I'm, I, I just did that great thing on Mount Carmel. If you just let me die and go be with my fathers, that would be a blessing, and, and I've, I've served my time, and I don't have anything left to give. And, and he didn't say, I'm afraid of Jezebel, but that's really what it came down to. And God looked at him and said, okay, get up. I've got three things I need you to do. He gave him those three assignments, and he said, now, also know that I've got 7,000 who, who have not bowed down to Baal. If you think you're special, you've got another thing coming. Get off the cross. We need the wood. And he went to work. He went to work. And so after God predestined Jehu to be the king of Israel, Jehu took immediate steps to secure the throne. And the first step was to deal with Ahab's son, Jeroboam, who was still living. Ahab is gone, but his son was still alive and he was the king. So uh, Jehu pursued him. And what, uh, what he did was he, he, the king went and hid in Jezreel, the city of Jezreel 
The reason he hid was because, again, he was wounded in battle against the Aramaeans, who was the other guy that God raised up, the king of, Ar of Aramah, in order to, to go against Israel. So everything's playing according. Look, here's the deal. God has, God has total sovereignty and providence over your life. Nothing in your life can ever happen that God is not aware of and oftentimes is, is in the middle of or allows to happen. Don't ever forget that. If you ask the question, where does evil come from? We already dealt with that earlier. Um, it comes from God. I'm going to be honest with you. It comes from God. Do you really think in heaven that God, when he created uh, Lucifer as one of the great archangels who was the worship instrument in heaven, and he was literally had jewels on him. He was a worship instrument. Do you really think that God was did not have a clue that he would turn against God in heaven? That he would be cast out of heaven? Do you really think that? Knowing what the Scripture says about God's foreknowledge, that before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, he already knew you? You better believe he knew Lucifer. And he created him knowing it. He wanted evil to be in the world. You say, what in the world, Pastor? That is heresy. No, it's not. Why do you know and appreciate forgiveness so much? Why do you have such a high value of grace? Because you know what it is to be a sinner, lost, destitute, no hope before God. So don't think for a second that God is clueless to these things. God is so much, we can't fathom the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding, the, the omnipresence, the, the power of God. Somebody would say to me, well, pastor, you've really been, and it's been, a lot of people have been saying it, you've been through a lot lately. My, my answer is, it's amazing how God uses the providence of bitterness. I went through, about four years ago, went through a really tough time in my life, and really just devastated, like somebody gut-punched me. I had no clue it was coming and totally shocked. And what the counselor said to me, I went to Leesburg, spent a week with a counselor in an intensive. You know what he said to me? He said, Greg, suck the life out of the pain. Learn everything you can from this experience. Suck the life out of it. Let God teach you everything there is to learn. I really believe if I had rejected that, and I said, well, that's crazy talk. I'm not doing that. I'm going after the people that hurt me. Do you think I'd be the pastor of Vero Bible Fellowship? No way. But I said, Lord, what are you trying to teach? What? Forget about what others have done. Teach me about me. Let me see what you see in me. And I stayed in my own backyard, and God began to show me things. And it led me to recover some things that I had gotten away from when I was younger, shepherding a flock in Palm Beach Gardens. It's really hard in a big church to shepherd. It just is. They treat you like a CEO, and you're not. And I was a fish out of water that whole time. Now I get to shepherd again. And that's God's plan. And that's God's, but God had to bring me through that, that bitter providence. Don't Neglect, don't ignore, don't run from bitter providence. Suck the life out of it. Those of you who've gone through major illness and sickness and disease and surgeries, suck the life out of it. What's God teaching you? Learn from it and get up and go as long as the, as the Lord has you here. Amen? <laughs> okay. We're, but this is, this is what's going on here, okay, in, 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 this, in this study this, this, uh, tonight. So... He pursues Jehoram, uh, or Joram, the king, the Ahab's son, and, and the guy's uh, in hiding, and he sends out a couple uh, soldiers to ask, are you, are you coming in peace? And he said, uh, what peace? What are you talking about peace? There's no peace in the northern kingdom. And he said, fall in line. And those two soldiers didn't go back and report like they were supposed to. They got in line with Joram, or with uh, Jehu. And then finally, the king himself. Joram uh, rides out in his chariot, and uh, he says, uh, Jehu, uh, is there peace? And he said, how in the world are we to have peace when we've got a harlot mother like you running the ship and all that she's doing? 
And he, I mean, he got on him about his mother. And immediately, it had to come to Joram what was going on. And he immediately knew, this is not good. God is judging my family. And he turned in that chariot and rode as fast as he could. I don't know if he had one, two, three, four horses, but he was going. And God gave uh, Jehu strength in his arms and, and gave him absolute clarity in sight. He drew that bow and he nailed the backside between the blade, the shoulder blades, into the heart of uh, the king that was, that was sitting on the throne. All of it was God's plan. All of it. This was God's judgment of the house of Omri. Omri. And I'm going to explain that to you in just a moment because some of you are wondering, what's it? Well, okay, you said that last week. You talked about Omri. Uh, well, let me share with you this. It may maybe clear things up for you. But before I do, let me just say, so then he shoots uh, the, the, the current king, kills him immediately. And then the king from the southern kingdom, Judah, Ahaziah, is standing there. And uh, he's a friend of the northern kingdom king. Why? Because he's relative to Ahab. He's part of the Om Omri dynasty as well. And so he sees what just happened, and he knows judgment's coming to, the, to, to my, my house. He rides off, and Jehu says to a couple of his soldiers, go take him out. They went after him. They mortally wounded him. They did not kill him. And he went ahead and fled further into the valley, down into Megiddo, which is the great battlefield for Armageddon. And there he died. Okay, so, so this house of Omri, this dynasty. Okay, let's talk about that. Uh, it, 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 it was, Omri was a king over the northern kingdom early on, okay? But he, he was actually the sixth king of the northern kingdom. But his, his ascension to the throne was a backhanded ascension because Zimri, this other guy who was part of the court of the current king, Elah, he finally got up the, the, the strength to take out the king. He assassinated the king, Elah. Well, then, while there was confusion over who the king would be, Omri rose up and had people support him, and he became the king. He didn't get it from God. He just took it because diplomatically he was in a position to take it. That's what he did. So he did. the Bible says that Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, up to that point in time, it says that he was the worst of all the six kings before him. Okay? So then uh, uh, what happens? Uh, his son took it, uh, took over, and took it up a notch. Uh, took it up a notch. Who was that? Ahab. Omri's son was Ahab. And then when Ahab died, who took it up from him? Joram, who was the guy that just got shot in the, or got killed in the back uh, by by an arrow. So it went from bad to worse to worse, and God had had enough. And so He is literally wiping out an entire dynasty a family dynasty that never had God's approval in the beginning to be kings, okay? And so back to our review from last week. So now there is only one person left from the Omri dynasty in the immediate family. Guess who that was? Ahab's wife. Who is that? Jezebel, the most wicked woman in the Bible next to the teachings that are in Revelation. Um, this is really interesting to me. Uh, so he approaches Jezreel, where she has a palace. She's still sitting as the queen. Her family members that are distant family, they would come and visit her, and they saw her as the queen. So she would be in this tower, and all of a sudden, she sees Jehu and his men riding up. And she puts on some face paint and tries to do her hair a certain way. When she was younger, they said she was absolutely stunning, beautiful. And so whether she was trying to appeal by that or she was just trying to show that she could stand up against anyone and wasn't fearful, she went to the window, and when Jehu got close enough, she yelled out at him and said, here comes that man who's just like Zimri, the guy who, who assassinated King Elah. Excuse me, you're, call, you're calling Jehu, who's doing the Lord's work of judgment, the same as a man who tried to seize power from an existing king. And on top of it, you've all you've done your whole life is take out people that got in your way. And, and so 
he finally listened to her. She, she blew off at him and tried to make a big scene. And then he just looked up at the tower where she's out of the window, and there's probably some other windows next to it. He goes, hey, is anybody else up there? And he knew the eunuchs were with her. And he said, if y'all just toss her down, we'll handle this thing right here and now. Here she's running her mouth with her face paint, thinking she's somebody still special. And he said, just, just throw her out the window. <laughs> Pow, splat. Splatted on the ground, splat on the, on the horses, splat on the wall. And the horses, uh, it stirred them so much, they, they trampled her. It's either they trampled her, or I can't figure it out, or Jehu and his men who were riding on horses, they were going inside to get a meal. After she splatted, they're like, okay, let's go eat. And uh, they just rode their horses right through her and went in and sat down and had a meal and loved it, enjoyed it uh, from her table. And then, uh, Je then Je uh, Jehu said, okay, go out and bury her because she is the daughter of a king. Her father was the king of Sidon, which is a pagan country. And she, she's the one that introduced Baal into Israel. And... Uh, so they came back and said, whoa, uh, there's nothing left. She's gone. What do, you, what do you mean she's gone? Well, there's a skull and there's some palms of her hand. That's it. The dogs have eaten her completely up. And Jehu sitting there and he goes, oh, yeah, that's right. I, I forgot about that passage. This is what the Lord said. And, 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 and he quotes in chapter 9, go back to chapter 9 if you want to look at it, verse 36, he quotes what was spoken about her in a prophecy. It said this, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Wow. Now, I gotta, I gotta say, okay, this woman's supposed to be so sharp, so cunning, so sly. She had to know this prophecy that was given about her, and that she would be killed, that she would die and dogs eat her in Jezreel. That's where her palace is. At least go live somewhere else, you know? I mean, be smart enough to go and try to make it somewhere else, but she didn't. And so uh, I guess the takeaway for this so far tonight is, if, if you are under the impression that there are certain people in this world that are getting away with murder, that they are not paying the price for their wicked deeds and wicked practices, that somehow they're getting away with it. Uh, God is giving you this story tonight and last week to let you know that no one gets away with anything before the Lord. No one. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every person you know that's wicked in their heart, that comes off smelling like a rose in the community, who seems to have everybody's favor in the community as one of the great leaders, but behind the scenes you know what they're doing and you know how wicked they are in their practices, believe me, they will stand before the court of God and have to bear witness to their account. And they will be judged. And they will be sentenced to eternal death spiritually and torment in hell. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody. And that's what God's teaching here. Sometimes God brings judgment while they're still living, like in this case. Sometimes it's after they're gone, and they think they got out smelling like a rose. They did not. So now we come to chapter 10. We haven't even gotten to chapter 10 yet. We're already 25 minutes in. Okay, here we go. Uh, this is where God is going to use Jehu as king to bring great reform to the northern kingdom, essentially cleaning up all the mess left behind by the, by the dynasty of, of, of Omri. And by the way, while he did take out the immediate family of, of uh, Ahab's family, there's still many more that are supporting the Omri dynasty and the Baal worship of the Omri dynasty. So, verse 1, now, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Wow, 70 sons in Samaria. Ahab was a busy man. And why would he do that? Well, it's pretty obvious, because he's a wicked king, and he fears for his life, and he wants to make sure that even if he dies, there will be sons that can step in, that his family will continue to have the dynasty, even if they take out 10 of them, there's still 60 more to go. So he is like trying to make sure that his dynasty lives forever, okay? That tells you a little bit about Ahab's heart, what was in it, okay? And so uh, now then, as soon as this letter, I'm sorry, 
So now Ahab had 70 sons. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And that's why you would find these 70 sons in Samaria. To the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab. In other words, I'm not going to write to the sons. This is for all the guys who know them, who maybe are working alongside them, or uh, are in favor of them. And he said, now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your masters, our sons, are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. So these were a significant danger to the anointing of King Jehu. He's trying to make sure that these 70 sons don't come after him, because he's now the king. First, they were descendants of Ahab, and they had a great interest in battling back to keep the throne of Israel among the dynasty of Omri. And secondly, they were in Samaria, the capital city, meaning they were away from Jehu. He wasn't in the capital city. And, and uh, so they knew he killed Joram, their king, and they might try to rise up. So Jehu challenged any members of the house of Omri to declare themselves and prepare to fight for their master's house. But verse 4, they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. I mean, he's taken out everybody else. Who do we think we are? He took out Ahaziah, the king of Judah, and he took out Joram, the king of Israel. So how can we stand? So he was over, he was over the palace, and he, and, and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. And then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Wow. Take the heads of your master's sons. So all of you who are supportive of them and maybe even connected as a, as a, as a distant family member or whatever, uh, take those 70 sons of, of Ahab and I want their heads. Bring them to me. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. So I would say Jehu's letter worked. And I would say that now they all recognize him as the anointed king over Israel. And uh, by the way, it was customary, okay, uh, throughout the, really that whole region, the, the, the ancient east, to pile up the heads of the captured rebels by this main city gate it, because it became a warning against any rebellion. So while he's still not in Samaria, he wants to make sure that there's nobody in Samaria who will try and rise up against him or bring up a new king. So he, he set those baskets full of heads for a, a, a day, and then he had them bring them to him. Pretty interesting, huh? Now, uh, if you think about it, this does fit. It's amazing how when God judges us or when God is correcting us or he's, He is disciplining us, it's amazing how He will go about doing it in such a way as to specifically address our sin. And what we see that just happened by the 70 sons having their heads cut off, that's in direct relationship to Ahab's sin because he had men killed, had their heads cut off. Okay? And if you remember, he had... Uh, sent for baskets of grapes from Naboth's garden. Huge, I'm talking 100-acre garden. And he wanted the garden. He coveted the garden. But Ahab's a wimp. He's a weak-kneed, watery-eyed wimp. He hadn't had the God-guided anything to stand up and do and talk to the man and see if he can negotiate. So, so he, his wife Jezebel, the wicked Jezebel, she went and had Naboth, the owner of the vineyard, killed so that she could give to her husband the vineyard that he coveted, the gardens that he wanted. So, uh, interestingly enough, uh, he had sent for baskets of grapes from Naboth's vineyard at Jezreel, and now the heads of his sons are brought thither in baskets. I love that. That was Trop who came up with that. He's a great theologian. Verse 8, when the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. There it is. Put them out where people can see them. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these. Know then that there shall fall 
that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and close friends and priests, until he left none remaining. So not only did he take out the 70 or have them taken out, now in the morning he takes out the remaining members of the Omri dynasty. And when the people saw those heads, you know, they're scared, and all of a sudden, some of them lost their lives right there on the scene. Verse 12, Then he set out and went to Samaria, and on the way, when he was at beth of the of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Okay, remember now, he took out Ahaziah when he took out Joram. Okay, so now you've got, and remember, Ahaziah was a relative to Ahab. It was, it was Jezebel's daughter that married Ahaziah, and he became the king in the southern kingdom. So Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, who had traveled a great distance. Here these relatives are coming just to visit, you know, with family, the Ahab's family. And he said, who are you? And they answered, we are the relatives of Ahaziah. We came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. You know, there's sometimes when you walk into a room, I, I, I can, I'm guilty of this on a far too regular basis. I'll be sitting at a table talking with people, and my wife will be sitting next to me, and I'll say something not knowing what I'm saying, and I'll get a thump on my leg from her knee, oh, like a shark bite. And she's really just trying to save me from saying the wrong thing. Well, guess what? These folks, we've come to visit the queen mother. Jezebel? Um, not good. Not good. He said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Bethlehem, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. Now, let me, let me say again to you. Let me just say this. The underlying theme of this chapter is God is bringing judgment, and His judgment always brings blood. It's not pretty. It's not something we want to see, but here's the thing about it. God is not like the judges of our day, who where there's a criminal who took the life of someone, and they give them a short sentence and release them. God said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God is for capital punishment. I believe that with all my heart. I can show you so many scriptures in the Bible that prove it. But see, it's not because he's evil, and it's not because God is, is, has a, he's not a sadist. He's not a masochist. It's because he's holy, and his holiness is offended. And these people have committed cosmic treason against the one true God. They have worshipped other gods, Baal, not even a real person, not even a real God, ahead of the one true and living God. And God said, I've had enough. And he brought strong judgment. Now, the other part of this is Jehu. And we're going to see as this chapter unfolds here the next few minutes, Jehu's background, you have to remember, he was a commander in Ahab's army. So he's a military guy. He's very familiar with death. It, it doesn't, it's no skin off his back to take a sword to somebody. Okay? On top of that, God called him, raised him up to, to do a cleansing of the house of Omri. But with that, as I read further into this chapter, I begin to ask the question. It just comes up more and more. Is he doing, carrying out God's will for the glory of God or for the glory of Jehu? And then I begin to think because I, you, you, you're, my thoughts then go, well, that, that's, that's that scoundrel, what he's doing, you know? God raised him up and he's doing it for the wrong reason. Well, I don't know that to be true yet, but the reality is this. We don't do that. God gives us an ability. God gives us the, the talent. God gives us a ministry. God gives us favor with people, and we minister. But then after a little while, oh, don't, no, no, it's not me. It's not me. No, no. 
I've done that. Where I've enjoyed what people have said about me. And the reality is, if God had not given me the ability to do whatever it was I did, I couldn't have done it. But I stole glory from God, and I had to repent of that. There's always a temptation to it. Don't tell me there's not. Your flesh is always wanting attention. Your flesh is always wanting to be first. Is that not true? You have to really work hard. You say, well, what's the main thing? What's the, if you give one, one thing that you could do to try and guard against giving in to your, your pride, I would say this. Keep your relationship with God fresh. Communicate with God every day. Talk to Him. Be in His Word. Let Him speak to you through His Word. Have a relationship with God. Don't just know what the Bible says. Don't just minister because you've been doing it long enough. Now I know how to do it. That stuff will carry you away from God. The very thing that you're doing for God, actually Satan will use to carry you from Him. When I was out in Dunklin, uh, at Dunklin, uh, west of Stewart, Florida, uh, which is a drug and alcohol rehab, I spent a week out there, and you're wondering, you were in drugs and alcohol? No, I was not. I thought somebody'd fall for it. Um, I used to go out there because the, the, I, I was good friends with Mickey Evans, the founder, and then also the chairman of the elder board was, was the chairman of our elder board in our church. And so I just loved going out there, such a peaceful place. And I went and sat under an oak tree. I went, first, I went and sat with Mickey. I said, Mickey, I'm troubled. We've, we've had a five-year run at the church, and man, God has done some incredible things. We've re reached goals, and I'm just blown away by what God has done. But I'm weary, I'm tired, and I don't know what to do. And he sat there behind his desk, and I remember he just leaned over, opened up a drawer, pulled out a legal pad, a yellow legal pad, full size, and he threw it at me. And he said, you got a pen? I said, yeah. You got a Bible? Yes, I do. I want you to go out in one of our cow pastures, watch out for the cow patties, and go out there and find a tree and sit under it and spend the day talking to the Lord, let Him speak to you with His Word. Remember, I went out and sat, and for the first half of the day, I, all I heard was birds chirping, and I heard just paying attention to nature. You know, it was beautiful. And uh, But I sat there the whole morning. Got up, walked around a little bit, came back, sat down, and got back in the Word, and all of a sudden, I don't know, I can't tell you how. It wasn't a voice, but I just sensed, based on what I was reading in the text, that the Lord was telling me, Greg, the reason you're weary and tired is because you have loved the ministry more than me. Your eyes have been on all that you've been doing in the church. And you haven't been spending enough time with me. Because I was in the Psalms and it was all about David, you know, how he would drift away from the Lord and then he would, God would call him back. What an eye-opener. And it changed my life. I went home and I was a different man after that. And I never want to go back to the place where I serve the Lord, but I don't love God. Well, you love Him but your life and behavior wouldn't show that you love him. And I think that's what happened to Jehu. He initially started out doing the right thing. He was a, if there was ever a patriot of Israel, northern kingdom, it was, it was Jehu. He was cleansing the northern kingdom of evil. And you better believe all the conservatives in that, in that region loved him. He was a Donald Trump of his day, honestly, because he did some incredible things. His policies were phenomenal. But along with that, I don't know that his heart was ever given truly to God. He was always stealing, capturing some of the glory. So, where did we leave off? Yes, verse 12. No. We're at 15? And we moved quick. Okay. And when he departed from there... Um, this, is, this is Jehu, the king. He met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, Rechab coming to, to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? 
Now that's interesting. Why didn't he say, is your heart true to the Lord as mine is true to the Lord? But he talked about him. Is your heart true to me? And, Jan and Jehonadab said, answered, it is. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. In other words, let's shake hands. So he gave him his hand, and then Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, come, now look, this, this breaks my heart. I mean, here's a guy going in the wrong direction. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Look what I'm doing for the Lord. Look at the good things I'm doing. Look what I'm doing for the Lord. Instead of, look what the Lord is doing through me. So he had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he struck down all the who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So he's still being obedient to God, doing, carrying out God's will, but I don't know that his heart was right. So who is this man, Jehonadab? Jehonadab. I, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. These are tough names, folks. Jehonadab. He was a faithful follower of the Lord and strict observer of the Mosaic law, leading a life of, of austerity and abstinence, one of the, one of the theologians said. Uh, it, it is interesting that in Jeremiah chapter 35, okay, so this is going forward into the prophetic years, uh, that God used the Rechabites or the Rechabites, that's the people of Jehonadab, and the memory of Jehonadab as an example of faithfulness and obedience to, to rebuke his unfaithful and disobedient Israel. So God saw Jehonadab as a faithful servant, okay? So Jeremiah records that Jehonadab was the leader of a group that lived this, this nomadic life in the desert, drinking no wine and depending solely on the Lord for their sustenance. I wish a little more of Jehonadab had rubbed off on Jehu. They were separatists to the core, okay? They were strong patriots of Israel and of the law, the Mosaic law. They lived in protest to the materialism and the religious compromise happening in the northern kingdom. So the shaking of that hand is a pledge of support. Now you've got this man of God who's coming alongside because he knows God is the one that raised you up to be king for this season. Now, according to, to Josephus, who is the Hebrew uh, historian who's not a believer, okay, Jehu and Jehonadab were friends of long standing and both detested the luxurious surrounding of the royal family. I'm going to say something to you. This is not gospel. This is not the Bible. This is me. I'm telling you what this when I read this and I research and I study Jehu, I'm telling you this is what came to my mind. Donald Trump. I do believe God raised Donald Trump up to bring reform and policy to take this country in a morally sound direction. But there was also a side of our president that I fringed. Some of the things that would come out of his mouth, some of the attacks that he made, the way he did it. And I just see a little, I wonder if there's a similarity there. Again now, this is not the Bible, this is Greg. I'm just giving you my two cents. You might say, I'm never coming back to that church again. He spoke a negative word about Donald Trump. Let me say this, if you want, I'll speak a negative word about every president. Because I, I don't think there's ever been a single one that's got it all right. And if you want, I'll tell you all my problems too. So I'm not putting myself on a pedestal, and I'm not going to put a man on the pedestal. I want to measure everything by the Word of God. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now, part of that means that he had this complete energetic loyalty to God. That's good. But it's also possible that this statement reveals the dangerous root of pride. See what I'm doing for the Lord. Verse 18, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. 
Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it, did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. So now <laughs> he goes into the city, and there he, he says, I'm now, I, I'm going to lift up Baal. I believe in Baal, and I want all the Baal worshipers to show up, and I want you to, we're going to have a big sacrifice to Baal. We're going to have a big, at the temple that, that Ahab built for, for Baal. The temple was huge. You could put, you know, I don't know how many people, but it was a huge temple. And so he's doing this. But look what it says. It says, but Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. He's just trying to find a way to rally them to come together. I want them all in the same, same building at the same time. Uh, so he's, getting, he's going to whatever great length he has to to weed out the Omri dynasty. Now he's not just taking out the family, the relatives. He's pretty much got that. Now he's going after those who support the Baal that that family dynasty brought to Israel. Verse 20, And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they pro proclaimed it. Can you imagine how excited all these people, the Baal worshipers, because they, they watched him take out their leaders. They watched him. But now all of a sudden he's changed. He's one of us. Woo-hoo-hoo! Let's go out and have a party. And, and Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come that worshiped Baal. And they entered the house of Baal. That's a big, pretty big building. And the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. And he's going along with this thing, and they're just thinking, man, this is awesome. So he brought out the vestments for them, and then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So if you're a worshiper of the Lord, you better get out now because we're about to have a we're we're about to worship Baal. So uh, maybe they should have been a little concerned when he said that. <laughs> yeah. Verse 24. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. If they try to get out of the building, you take them out. And as soon as he had made an offering, uh, made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a, not, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they demolished the pillar of Baal, and demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day, a public toilet. They desecrated the idol Baal so that it would never be reconstructed again. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Is it possible that the Lord would use you and you serve the Lord and still not be completely given to Him? Yes. Here's the example. The downside is it doesn't always end well for you. So, you know, Ahab had built this temple and God tore it down through Jehu. Now, all through the northern kingdom with all the kings, they all began to slip and slide down the slope of idol worship. You go back to the very first, and that was Jeroboam number one, and he was steeped in idolatry. And Jeroboam began with false representations of the true God. What was that? Golden calves. He's the one that introduced the people to golden calves. Then, uh, after him, the kings continued in different forms of idolatry. Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, until the reign of Ahab. Under Ahab, Israel moved from the false worship of the true God to a state-supported worship of a false god. So before, and look at the look at the tra trajectory, the spiritual, the, the spiritual downgrade of Israel. The first thing you do, you don't take out God. You create what looks to be the worship of God, but it's not. 
You call it God. It looks enough like God. People think it's your worship of God, but it's not. That's America right now. That is America. We've got more churches than you can, than you can imagine who now have a form of worship that is not the true worship of God. They say God, they say Jesus, they say the Holy Spirit, they talk about the cross, they talk about all this. But people are not being called to repentance. They're not experiencing true salvation because they're not being presented the truth about Jesus. You've got a lot of churches today who they see Jesus as social justice Jesus. What Jesus is really interested in is feeding the poor, clothing the naked, and all that stuff. He is, but He is God, and He's to be worshipped as God. And when you go and minister to the poor, you minister to the, to the brokenhearted, you share Jesus with them, the real Jesus, who can save them from their sin. Don't just give them food to eat because they're hungry. Feed them, but tell them about Jesus and that they're sinners and that they're destined for hell unless they turn from their sin. That's what churches aren't doing. There are pastors who will not use the word sin in the pulpit. There are pastors who will not mention the word repentance. They never teach atonement. They never teach what true redemption is in the gospel. They simply tell people, Jesus loves you. These commercials that were on the Super Bowl, I didn't even watch any of the commercials, but somebody told me they were on. So I went on YouTube and saw one of them. What, what is it, name of the organization? He gets us. He gets us. What does that mean? It's not about us. It's about the worship of Him. It's about you getting Him. But you know what? I heard Christian leaders on my podcast that I listened to, and they were excited about it. Oh, isn't that wonderful? We had two, two Christian uh, advertisements during the Super Bowl. They didn't get it. That's how far we're in that stage now. And this was the stage leading up to Ahab where we're still going to call it God, but it's going to be golden calves. And we're going to do this. And then all of a sudden, Ahab comes on the scene. He says, you know what? Forget that. We're, we're bringing in a new state religion. It's not God. And you will worship. This is the only religion that's sanctioned by the nation. And you have to worship this way. That's next in our country. You watch. Okay? And that, that's, let me tell you, say this. Based on the scripture, that's where we're going to find out who the real Christians are in our nation. Right now, you go to that prayer breakfast in the morning, it'll be jam-packed with people. And I'll be there. You're going to see, you know, I don't know how many people. Tons of people. But wait until they say you cannot worship God the way you've worshipped Him. And you're going to see people drift over and line up behind the wrong king. It's going to happen. And I, I, It's not because I'm a prophet. I'm not trying to say I, God's shown me a vision. It's in the Bible. This is what's going to happen. All the way until the day that Jesus returns, this is what's going to happen. So only true believers will remain faithful to God. Something for us to think about, isn't it? So, verse 29, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son... Okay, so he did all these good things. He brought reform. He completely took out all, all of Baal worship in Israel. Woo! He was a national celebrity. This guy was the, he was the greatest patriot of Israel. But he didn't know the Lord. He didn't, his whole heart was not given to God. Look what it says in verse 29. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam. That was the first king that brought the golden calves, the very first idol worship, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Now, interesting, he continued to let people worship at Bethel and Dan and in Dan golden calves. The whole time he's taken out Baal. He didn't allow the worship of those golden calves to move into Jerusalem. or Well, not he wouldn't have because he or into Samaria, the capital city. He kept them in remote places, but he didn't get rid of them. 
So he got rid of the, the bigger idol worship, but he left the little things. And he, that, was a, that was his fault. That was his downfall. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well. Now, now God gives him commendation here. Look at this. Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So, if anything, he promoted the false worship of the true God. That's what that original sin was with Jeroboam. And he gave it after the pattern of Jeroboam. I thought this quote by F.B. Meyer, great theologian. Listen to what he said, very insightful. Now we're turning it to us. Forget about Jehu for a moment. Let's, let's, let's think about ourselves. Let's get in our own backyard for a second, okay? F.B. Meyer, he said, quote, Do not be content to be strong against evil. Be eagerly ambitious of good. It is easier to be vehement against the abominations of others than to judge and put away your own secret sin. Don't just be this person who's all out to end evil. Public declarations about evil and standing against evil and willing to go and do whatever, pay the price to try to remove evil. When you've got little sins in your own life that nobody knows about. That's Jehu. There, so, so, interesting. This is very interesting. Hosea, write it down. Hosea chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Hosea 1, really verse 4, but I'm going to throw 5 in. Listen to what it says. This is, Hosea is one of the prophets, right? What a prophet. Man, if you ever want a great story, um, turn off that stupid boob tube that's got all the re reality TV shows, all these people on there with their, you know, the what is it called? The, the guy dates 30 women, has a harem that he gets to sleep with, and then pick a bride. Can you believe that's on TV, that nonsense? Good grief. I, I, if I was a young man, I wouldn't want to date a single one of those women because they put themselves in that position. They don't respect their own bodies. Good grief. Now, Hosea, you know, he goes out and God told him to marry a prostitute. And he did it. But she was a picture of Israel, how they had whored themselves. And yet God still loved them. Wow, the amazing love of God, the depths, the breadth that God's love will go to reach a lost soul. Mm. But in Hosea 1, 4, it says, And the Lord said to him, to Hosea, and of course he's speaking, I'm gonna, I want you to say this to Israel. He says, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow, the bow, the bow is it bow, of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All of a sudden now, to Hosea, God says, I'm going to judge Jehu. Because when he went to the city of Jezreel, he took out all those people, not for my glory, but for his own. He was making a name for himself at that point. So God did commendate him here at the end of our chapter, chapter 10, but not without further concern and dealing with Jehu. His name, God's basically saying, I don't want his name to be great after his death and he's gone because this is what he did. He took my glory for himself. I find that interesting. And if you look at it, that's really, that's really a picture of Jehu. Jehu had two sides to him. One side was faithful to God. The other side, kind of a little bit of a pride thing going on. Um, Jehu carried out God's will, but there seemed to be this, this uh, joy for how it made him look when he carried out God's will. Jehu carried out God's will, but he only did it partially. He, he stopped the idolatry of Baal, but he continued in the lesser idol worship, and left them left that worship for people. 
So verse 31, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord and God of Israel, and all his heart uh, he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made to sin. And in verse 32, And in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So now, okay, so now God gives a postscript. Jehu's gone. Um, in the postscript he says, In the days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Massonites, uh, Manassites uh, from Erer, uh, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So God is raising up these pagan nations and others to now judge Israel because they never did turn back to God. Their idol worship was reduced. Baal's gone. They can't worship him, but they still had other ways. But their hearts were not given to God. So this is the work of the Lord, using the neighbors of Israel to bring judgment to Israel. And, of course, we know that uh, eventually uh, it would be the, who was it, the Assyrians that God would send in, and they completely leveled the northern kingdom. And they took the people, families, fathers, mothers, children, and divided them and sent them in different directions with new names, names that were not Jewish, and sent them in different directions and broke up families, literally did everything they could to make sure that that kingdom would never come back together and be established again. And guess who ordered it up? God. God. Nobody gets away with anything. Verse 34, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoaz, his son, reigned in in his place. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. That's a long time to reign in the northern kingdom. Because your, 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 your kingship was always you know, threatened by others who wanted to take it. But 28 years, yet not really knowing the one and following his commandments that you serve. Wow. Interesting. Any, any questions about this chapter? Any thoughts, comments, but questions? We, yes, Muffy. I'm sorry? Yes. Yes. Well, when he, remember he had um, all the people, he told the guys, take out the 60 and then gather them all together and then he wiped them out. However, in doing so, the thought of commentary, many commentaries, is while he was doing it, he wasn't just doing it for the Lord. His own heart, it was giving him a name. And that's what they've come to the conclusion of, that that means in, in Hosea. Uh, it sounds like it. And if you did all that kind of work for the Lord, you'd kind of get a big head too, wouldn't you? You'd be tempted to it. You know, you want to be, but... The, the flesh is, <laughs> that flesh will come after you. Any other questions? Yes. Okay. By who? Okay. Wow. I'll have to pick that up. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? It's good to have questions and answer time, you know, and share thoughts and comments, and we can learn from each other. I appreciate that. Anybody? Well, guess what? Let's close in prayer. And in closing in prayer, let's uh, let's take time to greet one another before we leave. And uh, they, there's still some food over there if you'd like to grab a little snack before you head out. Father, thank you so much for tonight's time in the Word. We are just like little sponges, dried sponges looking for a drop of water. We're like little children under a table looking for a morsel of bread. And and yet, that is not your view. 
from your view, you say, I want you to come and sit at my table. And we sit down and we see a spread of food like nothing we've ever seen. And you tell us, I want you to take and I want you to eat. I want this food to nourish you. And that's what you've done tonight with the bread of life. You've given us opportunity to sit at your table, to take in your living word, that it might nourish us spiritually and challenge us and grow us. May we leave with joy in our hearts that we've been able to study the Bible. And may we leave also with joy knowing that we've been with God's people. May we love one another the way you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.